Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, where we discuss practical science and not so common sense to live a life more extraordinary. On our very first episode, we hold space for Luke's origin story, which also gives you a taste of the topics to come. So let's get started. Here are your co-hosts, Luke and Rachel. We are here on our first episode of The Tailored Life, or hashtag Tailored Life as we like to call it. And why are we here? What even prompted us to do this? I think it was just the incessant nature of just requests from people that we know and love um, that when we finally have a conversation to them about what we do and why we do it, they're like, wow, I didn't know these things existed. You guys should have a podcast. I'm like, and it just happened over and over and over again. And we've resisted it for the longest time because it's a lot of work. It really is. And we're already busy. <laughs> we we're busy enough before and then even just with this third iteration of getting this podcast up and running, <laughs> the time and, you know, because we, we, we want to do things right. So it's like we you know we buy a nice camera set up, we buy a light set up, you know, and it's these little things that just add on extra time. So it's – but we are meeting the requests and we're going to try this and see what happens. This may just be a mini-series uh, of us just yarning that people can review back, but who knows? People might, might enjoy it and um, we, we love to talk about this stuff, so I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Now that we've got the setup sorted, I'm hoping it's all streamlined <laughs> from away. here on. Squared away. And so I guess you could say our informal title for this podcast is really what we wish our loved ones understood and did. Is yeah. that a fair, a fair assessment? Yeah. yeah, we've just got a more fancy title than that. But uh, I think what's cool, though, is that uh, how we bring in and merge the worlds of that modern science technology and kind of the not so common sense so it's actually really funny how much or how little we are taught growing up at school for example like we're just I'm horrified constantly especially speaking to other women around just the menstrual cycle for example who don't know some of the basics which would give them so many aha moments in their monthly lives and not only that but help their partners and their family understand um, but more powerfully help them treat that yep. journey. But I digress. We're getting ahead of ourselves. And so if we reflect upon our informal title why, it really kind of stems down to our fundamental why that we have. Uh, and that is really uh, the the journey to vibrant well-being shouldn't be this confusing or lonely. Yep. Yep. I think we've all been on our health journeys to some extent and, you know, it is never a um, straight line. It's full of undulations and pits of loneliness. Um, so, yeah, it's just about, yeah, helping people through that. And where we are always there as hopefully a guiding voice um, mm-hmm. to help impart some powerful information that we've found helpful on our journeys. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, we often talk about real health as slow health at our health clinic, don't we? which is a very different perspective to kind of traditional commercial health, which is get fit fast, lose weight fast, mm. whatever it might be, which I do want to get to because I could imagine in your 
your origin story and kind of how that's knitted together, that's been kind of the classic undertone, I think, as well as your experiences running Tailored Health as a clinic um, <laughs> and your client journeys that you've helped curated and guided people through. But um, so that's what I would love to talk about today. So when, when I first met you, which was a number of years ago now, we were friends for a wee while. And what struck me about you was, I guess, the word that pops up would be command. You had a command of yourself, um, sort of your destiny, the way you held yourself was um, poised and put together. And I think one of our friends uh, once said that they were intimidated by you because you just seemed to have your shit put together. <laughs> and and so that's, I guess, that's how I perceived you at the very, very beginning uh, during an entire unraveling in my life, which we will get to at some point in time. But as we kind of double tapped into your journey, which is remarkable, by the way, the more I realized that your why of the path to vibrant well-being shouldn't be this confusing or lonely absolutely had its formation. And so I'd love to start unpicking that with you for others to learn about uh, because, again, this facade that is tr still a true and authentic person that you are, there, there is so much poise there, but there's also so much growth, learning, lessons, pain, struggle, challenge, frustration that has formed you into who you are today, which is the beautiful story I'd love to be able to help unfold with you. And so the, the first question I have for you is, what is your first memory of living in pain? Yeah, and just to kind of speak to what you were saying there is, I think no one really understands the individual struggle of each person you know, behind the curtain. Uh, it's much like an iceberg. Um, what we see on the top is just such a small amount of what really sits underneath the water. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think we all have our struggles. Um, I, I certainly have had mine, um, and I'm looking forward to sharing them today. And hopefully, people can identify with them and um, help them along their journey. So, yeah, my first memory of pain. <laughs> when I reflect upon my life, there's been lots of pain, um, but to define a the first moment when I had pain. It was probably when I actually identified that I wasn't normal compared to everybody else. So the reason I say that is pain was part of my life. When I was four, I was diagnosed with a flexibility disorder known as Elos Danos, uh, which essentially means I'm ligamentously mobile. Uh, my joints can get into crazy positions, um, but as a result, my muscle bellies are extremely tight. And there's a whole bunch of downstream issues, but long story short, I'm extremely injury prone. And being injury prone means there's lots of pain. So I had every injury under the sun from a very young age and yeah, I'm very often debilitated by injuries where, you know, I the reason they identified my Elos Danos is I was running around the rugby field at four years old, like an old man, uh, because I just didn't have the mobility. Uh, I was just, my muscle bellies were just so tight. It was just wouldn't allow me to freely move like a kid should be able to move. So, yeah, like, it's hard to point a time where pain, where my first memory of pain occurred because 
I think it was through the gradual observation of looking at my peers around me and seeing that they didn't have all the injuries that I had. They didn't have to do all the stretching that I had to do um, prior to everybody else. And um, they didn't have the muscle soreness that I had. And it was through that gradual observation that, huh, I'm a bit different compared to everybody else. And that's when I started to identify that the pain is not normal, but the pain's always been part of my life. So therefore, yeah, I don't really have a time for you, but it was a gradual observation throughout mm, yeah. um, childhood, I guess. I'm still trying to Im- imagine you running around like an old man. <laughs> In my mind, there's this kind of like a little meme that has a four-year-old kind of running around like he should have a walking stick or something. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that, as a side note, I wonder if your mom ever took a video. I hope so. And only yeah. only to yeah. kind of laugh with you because yeah. that must have been really quite awkward. Like, yeah. I, I guess when, when you're that age, you're probably not as self-aware of differences until possibly you get a little bit older and you start to have that wonderful comparison journey. Um, and so... With pain being your friend, I suppose, uh, what was that like in the journey of trying to figure out what it meant and how you either got rid of it, managed it? Like, what was that like? Yeah, so when I was diagnosed with the flexibility disorder, um, my parents were also told that I could be in a wheelchair bound as an adult um, because Essentially, things get so bad through puberty when I go through my growth spurt that I could be wheelchair-bound. So there was a big surgery in America that I was supposed to do, and the doctors gave me a whole bunch of stuff to kind of keep myself going, or specialist, should I say. So I had to do 60 minutes of stretching a day. I had to be as active as possible, uh, hence my love for sport. So, yeah, I, from very early on, was kind of, told that I had to be active. and But mum didn't share that information with me straight away because she didn't believe that I should have to deal with that at four years old. So she waited a little while. I can't remember how old I was when she eventually told me that, you know, the trajectory that I was on at four years old could have led me to being wheelchair-bound. Maybe seven or eight when she told me that that was the case, but I was already on a good trajectory by that point. So, And I'm very thankful for having mum understanding how to kind of guide me through that journey and just her internal optimism to kind of really just push mm. me in that right direction um but I think I've gone off the point of your question so what was your question <laughs> so we're talking about um you know what that path was to try to get treatment or try to manage That's I mean right. you alluded to the fact that you went to specialists and that there was a requirement of um you know being active and mm. things like that but but with the sports that you chose or the sport that you chose at that point in time, what were the implications? Yeah, so rugby was my life from about 4 to 21. Which is the most ironic sport to be involved with. Yeah, um, classic Kiwi kid uh, that wanted to be an all-black. So I lived and breathed rugby from 4 to 21. It was my life. I knew all the facts, um, knew all the players, and I lived and breathed it. Because your dad was quite a sportsman too, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah, he? yeah. So my dad is a W amputee, um, so uh, lost his arm and leg um, when he was about 20-ish. And up until that point, he was um, first 15, you know, really top rugby player. Um, and 
won the Marty Cup for rowing and probably the only team in Fraser to ever do it. So he was very much a sports person. And there's definitely, I, I think, some, um, you know, living through me, uh, through uh, sport, because he wasn't able to fulfill his uh, levels that he wanted to attain. Mm. So, yeah, there was definitely some of that going on for sure. And I think that what led for my passion, especially early on, to kind of fall into rugby and just be as avid as I was. So, yeah, uh, worst sport when you're injury prone is to <laughs> play rugby. <laughs> uh, so I just had injury after injury, but it led me down this continual curiosity of, you know, into these specialist offices where I would be dealing with physios, specialists, doctors, and really understanding the medical system and how that worked. And uh, it led me into a big passion for injuries because by the time I was uh, an adult, I'd literally had majority of injuries you could have. Um, I have had, I've had such a significant amount of injuries in my life. There's not many injuries that are left. That are left in the head. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, cool. But I learned how to rehab each and every one mm. of those. And that led me down that passion of understanding what I need to do and how to do it and the right tools and techniques. And uh, and I, I just loved talking to every specialist that I saw right throughout. And it was just an extremely fascinating time to kind of yeah really unpack that. But I spent way too much time in specialist offices for a young kid. Like, mm. <laughs> I shouldn't have been in there that much. You know, you would have thought that, okay, this isn't worth it, but classic rugby mentality is she'll be right and that kind of all led into my final season where I just had so many injuries this is a perfect example of what I was kind of dealing with uh this was kind of you know the peak of where it hit I guess and then it was just too much but I literally sprained both ankles so many times I created bone spurs uh so that's your body pretty much creating bone to protect itself uh, I had pretty much every overuse in the injury you can imagine. I had um, did my left SIJ, uh, so left lower back. I had separated both shoulders multiple times. Uh, I think I did L4, L5 as well. Um, I did separate, yeah, did I say shoulders? Separated shoulders yeah. multiple times, yeah. separated, uh, dislocated the elbow, left elbow, and then broke both wrists. And that was all in one season. I'd just strap myself head to toe every se- every game. Um, so I'd go to a strapping clinic on Saturday morning and just strap myself head to toe and pop a few painkillers, anti-inflammatories, and push on through and just play 80 minutes every game. And, uh, yeah, so that was kind of my mechanisms up until that point was just doing what I could to get through because it was about playing the game, not necessarily about long-term health. Mm. And, of course, as you mentioned, sort of classic rugby culture, the, the phrase is she'll be right, which for our international listeners, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common Kiwi fra- you know, phrase that's used in, in sort of that sport or rugby culture, which is really dangerous. Mm. Uh, and so you kind of take your high pain threshold, which because of course pain had been a friend for so long, you'd become kind of immune to its, you know, gradual callings every single second of the day. Um, and then general injury-prone nature. I mean, you've just got a ball of bodily trauma mm. there. And so at the end of that season when you – I mean, I can't even imagine. I've, I've competed on a broken broken toe before and various injuries, and that was 
debilitating. But I understand in competitive sports the nature of you've got you've got this far, you've trained so many hours. This is a commitment to a sport you adore. And you just need to see through this game. So I, I can understand the the mental context of of why you'd, you'd do that. But where was your head at once that that ref called the whistle, like called the game? It was over. How did you? Did you know that was your last game? Were you kind of at a point where you're like, okay, now I've, this is the end of season. I can now recover. Like, mm. what was your mental process at that point in time with that much pain, that many injuries, strapped up head to toe? Like, tell tell me more about what that was like. So at the time, you know, I just thought I'll just keep on chugging along, and uh, there was never a time where I thought, okay, this is my last game. But in the years to come, uh, over the next three years, I literally. Couldn't couldn't run and couldn't even really walk without pain, to be honest. And I'm back into the specialist office as I go. <laughs> and yeah, I just continually got told, you're not going to run again. And I was like, no, I'm not going to accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm only, I think I was 20, 21 at this point and maybe 20, 20, 21. And there's no way I'm not going to run because at that time, that's how that was my mental health was I used to run a lot. Um, and that's how you warmed up because what we haven't talked mm. about is just how much extra warm-up you did mm. before every single game compared to your your peers. Mm. Yeah, so um, being with Elos Danos, like I literally just had to be super prepared. And so the I don't have very much tissue tolerance, so I have to first of all warm up my tissues quite significantly before getting into a game so it's more pliable and can actually um, handle the stresses of the game. And then the recovery is the the longest thing. Um, so while everybody else may be back ready for Monday training, uh, my body was never ready, but I would pretty much hack the system as much as I could by doing whatever I could. So um, trying to avoid the drinking on the Saturday night, which is a very classic rugby culture. Uh, Sunday was a full-on recovery day where I would be doing a lot of hydrotherapy. So I'd be in the pool, doing a lot of stretching. Mm. Um, yeah, I had a whole routine of things. I can't remember what it was now, uh, but really focusing on good nutrition. And then that went right through to kind of Monday. And then I would generally fumble my way through training, but oh, my body wasn't ready for it. Mm. Um, but, you know, I have to show up and do the trainings and um yeah, so there was it was a lot that I was doing behind the scenes outside of everybody else. You know, I that's would, very isolating and segregate. Yeah. You know, segregating because if you think about if all your teammates are going out drinking and connecting as a team, mm. and that's something not necessarily you could consistently do or do at all because mm. you had to prioritize recovery just to be at their level or higher. What yeah. did, did you feel like there was a an disconnection there or were you able to kind of do it all and enough to make that work i was young and dumb i went out and (laughs) (laughs) i still did it okay good (laughs) i just still went out and partied way too much and i knew what i shouldn't have been but you get swept into that culture and you want to be part of the team and um yeah i paid too much alongside the recovery which obviously probably led to things you know there's definitely a a big learning about how far i could push my body um Mm. through this period of time and yeah, so although I was doing all the work behind the scenes, I was, you know, still doing the extra curricular yeah. activities of celebrating a little bit too much. And yeah. Well, I mean, which is, again, I think you were a captain, so you kind of had to be there 
and be part of the glue. So what seems to be a, a sort of a, a emerging trend here is you had to try to find or ride the very, very thin line, ride the wave between performance and recovery and try to do do that as efficiently as possible compared yeah. to others because you just there's only so many hours in a day. And I remember you saying when we, we were at Fongmata, which is a beach in New Zealand, um, we were going to see the sunrise at the beach, I think like that, and we saw like a seven-year-old mm. running by himself. And I was blown away. I'm like, wow, this boy, is mm. he, you could see in his face, he's determined and committed, and he was like, yeah, Rach, that's, that's what I was doing. And I just... To, to be at that age and have that much resolve in the effort to overcome a pretty scary prognosis, I mean, that's, that's the stuff of heroes. You know, like, you know, oh, no, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, not trying to, like, increase your ego here, but, like, when you, when you think about Rocky and all of the things, all of the protagonists and what they have to overcome, mm. like, this is the classic. Hero's journey. Hero's journey. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So anyway, let's get back to when you'd you'd have sort of that last game where you had a variety of injuries. It was like a a la carte menu of injuries that you've pretty much had. And being told by specialists at that point in time that you probably won't be able to run again. No, no. I won't be able to. There was no probably. Oh, really? No probably. It was just like, no. You won't be able to run again, take up um, a low-impact sport like swimming uh, or... Yeah, I think it was the swimming or cycling, I think it was the two that they suggested at the time. And I said, hell no. Uh, because at that time I was studying sport exercise science and uh, and I had the capacity to kind of dive into the literature and I said, there's no way I'm going to allow this prognosis to be the thing. You know, like first of all, I was told I was going to be wheelchair bound. Now I'm being told I can't run again. And I'm like, no, I'm only so young. There's no way they're taking this away from me because, you know, sport is part of my identity so yeah it was about three years of just fighting with specialists trying to get some help nobody helping me and just everyone just saying just accept it and just kind of this is what you can do and uh, don't worry about what you can't do and and move forward and I was like nah so yeah I dove into the literature and identified a number of underlying issues um, for me that was um yeah, holding me back. So firstly, it was uh, had a lot of um, mold from a childhood that was um, impacting me. So a lot of mold, which signified as mold toxicity. So, which if you don't know much about mold toxicity, it is extremely deadly and um, can be really impactful. And yeah, so I had to kind of clear that out of the system first and foremost, because you know it can pretty much make you bed bound. That that's how bad mold toxicity is, just really bad information. Um, but maybe in another episode we can dive into what mold toxicity is and how bad that is. Um, and then I had terrible gut health, no surprises. I had a horrendous diet, um, very picky kid, uh, so I did not eat many good foods. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I had a lot of painkillers and anti-inflammatories, anything to get me through the games. So obviously I just decimated my good gut bacteria. Mm. So I want to interject here because what people don't know, which is mm. not so common sense, which shocked me too, mm. is that ibuprofen and mm. many other anti-inflammatories are like a grenade to your gut. Yep. So it, it, if you want another kind of antibiotic to, to obliterate your gut mm. microflora, 
ibuprofen mm. is one of them. There are many others, but you were probably just taking that like like candy. Oh, yeah, like candy. So, yeah, the analogy I use is antibiotics are like the hand grenade, but then um, anti-inflammatories are the shotgun. Oh, wow. So it's not, not quite as bad as antibiotics, mm. but not far behind. Um, they're pretty – both of them you don't want because, yeah, so I, I – to be honest, since I've dove into that literature, I identified that and I have had it on very few occasions. I could probably put on one hand now how many anti-inflammatories mm. I've had since I was 21. Um, yeah, I mean, that takes me back to my days, which mm. we'll go through, I'm sure, yeah. in a different episode. But um, I was on Voltaren way more for way mm. longer than I should. Ibuprofen mm. constantly. Yeah. And then wondered why I was having issues too. Yep. But I think that's going to be another episode where we actually oh. do dive deep into some of these things we just have no clue about. Mm. But, you know, gut health is such an important part. So getting back to you, you, you looked at mold toxicity. There seemed to be undercurrent symptomology there. Then you dove into, okay, gut health. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about that for you. Well, so like obviously uh, terrible gut health, um, and then the other kind of key thing I noticed was um, adrenal fatigue or HBA axis um, dysregulation. So that's just essentially chronic stress and no surprises there because, you know, again, something else we'll probably go into in future episodes, but stress is often misunderstood as mental and emotional stress, the stress that you perceive. But stress is so much more than that. It is what you eat. It is your lifestyle. It is your environment. Uh, so it's a whole combination of things and yeah, no surprises when you've got poor gut health and mold toxicity, both stresses, plus the stress I was putting on my body on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah, I was burnt out, uh, mm. long story short. And so I had to kind of really take a step back and fix these things. And yeah, that was a very confronting time because I had to put aside everything I had done in the past to kind of get myself better because I tried everything through movement i was like a movement specialist at this point you know like i was doing you my had sporting... to rehab everything like yeah. you are the body whisperer when it comes to recovery rehab injury yeah i was um doing sport exercise science i was training people i was rehabbing people and that was my specialty was rehab and i did everything i could do physically to no success for about three years it took me a long time to kind of really figure out what was going on and then it wasn't until i identified those things and took that step back away from the movement and looked at my mindset, my lifestyle, my nutrition. And um, that's where I kind of addressed these kind of three key things that I had that I had to deal with. So for the mold, obviously removed that, <laughs> got that out of my life and got that out of the system too. Uh, for the gut health, I had to really go into the diagnostics to understand what was going on with my gut so I could heal that. Um, but I identified a number of intolerances, so gluten and dairy, they got thrown out. Um, and then it was all about repopulating good bacteria to kind of um, get their, their gut diversity back up and eating real food. <laughs> because, again, up until this point, my diet was horrendous. Um, I don't think people realize that I was such a fussy kid, but I was. I was an extremely fussy kid. I know people see me now as the, the health guy and he wouldn't eat junk. <laughs> Ask my mum. <laughs> It's not the case. I lived on chicken nuggets and french fries. Oh, (laughs) I was a kid. Um, And then the final thing was get in charge of the stress. So this is when meditation came into play. This is where 
um, just un- identifying strategies to unload the stresses from all parts of my life. Um, so really sitting back and addressing my life and understanding how I can remove those stresses. So this is really the, the fundamental foundation of the four pillar philosophy um, that I've now created for tailored health. So mindset, lifestyle, nutrition, movement, and that order. So it all started with my own personal journey of just struggling to find the answers mm. and you know, struggling in the wrong areas. I was yeah. looking at movement and nutrition. Well, actually, I was looking at movement uh, first and then didn't solve it there. So then I tried nutrition, but I wasn't looking at the mindset and the lifestyle. They're the really first two key pillars because it is in that order. Okay, I want to bring up a specific thing I wrote down here. Um, do you remember the moment you felt the medical system really had no clue? And so while you were doing your education, while you were um, doing your degree, you were also working. So you started a business, you come from a a family of entrepreneurial kind of activities. And so you started your own business, uh, working in the clinical space and taking what you'd learned and actually helping people to recover or heal from injury. And so there must have been a lot of tension, I suppose, between what you were seeing clinically, what you'd learned throughout your entire path on how to heal, how to recover, how to how to, to get your body in a good place and what you were being taught, which, again, no offense to, to teachers, no offense to the medical system, but it's it's largely based on a lot of old information, uh, which hasn't yet, or the, the new stuff, the new modern research hasn't yet filtered into the, to the mainstream system. And so there, there must have been some type of tension between what you were seeing clinically, what you were learning from the modern research papers and, and clinical updates and what you were being taught and so what was that like interfacing with your tutors or your your teachers when there was clearly um a, a rebuttal around what they were teaching yeah it was it was really uh i suppose yeah friction is probably a good way to put it there's a lot of friction in there and in my undergraduate it was a lot of internal friction because i wasn't brave enough at that point in myself as a um, scientist to kind of really have those academic discussions with my lecturers because, you know, these are people who are on a pedestal at that point in time. It wasn't until I kind of went away, did a few years in the industry and really kind of honed my craft and really honed the literature and uh, came back for postgrad. And that's where I started to get a little bit more, um, you know, have those academic discussions, which, you know, uh, I've, I really enjoy because I want to get to the root cause of what is going on, understand why they believe what they believe, because it's in those beliefs that we can really start to unpack what is, you know, driving uh, their reasoning. And then I might actually change my mind because like my goal is to be as pragmatic as possible uh, because I think there's too many people that are very dogmatic and stuck in their ways. So it's just about taking that step back and, looking at the facts mm. and looking at the science. And I think we too too easily fall into the patterns of what is known uh, because, you know, sports science is a relatively new area and we don't know shit. Um, you know, so many things are just continually evolving. And even into health science, still don't know shit. Like it is such a new an evolving area, like for example, the glymphatic system, a system that is in our brain, which is like the garbage clearing system for the brain. It's much like our lymphatic system for our body, uh, for our blood. Um, and that's so important for sleep. Oh, so important. 
Yeah. And so, and this is what, actually, this is the topic that comes up quite common, commonly in our social circles, mm. just educating people about some of this new information, which mm. is really forming the undercurrent of why sleep is such a foundational mm. element in the path to vibrant well-being. Yeah. And so, yeah, the glymphatic system was only identified in the last few years. Like, so to, to say, like when I graduated in 2012, um, to say that we knew it all, we didn't even identify the glymphatic system by that point, I believe. I need to check the when we actually identified. I think it was 2014. But, um, yeah, we didn't even know about that at that point. So how could we know everything? So, yeah, there's a lot of conflict in there for that. But obviously, you know, I had those academic discussions. But what I found was it can be dangerous to get stuck in academia and not actually be in the clinical setting. Because if you're not in the clinical setting, you're not seeing it in action. And it's in through the clinical setting where you can really figure out what works and what doesn't work mm. because you're a lot more mobile um, to trialing different things. Mm, with the right people and also yeah. with the right teachers too. So I think in the past you've explained to me a situation where you actually had a receptive tutor or teacher mm. and you'd kind of proposed a different way of doing something which was then adopted by that person, mm. I believe, like a functional movement screen element as well. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I wouldn't say welcomely adopted. <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a lot of things that I heard after I left, which we had a lot of debates about, but after I left, found, were introduced into the class. Mm. Um, so never got the vindication and <laughs> of being right of being right in the setting but i guess there was the vindication there because i heard that those things were made into the um, adopted into the, into yeah, the actual into, curricula yeah so yeah there's a lot of things like that which uh, i noticed after the fact through you know um, people that were going through so yeah you know what and as much as that's always hard to to accept and hold space for I mean, if, if it's not for people like yourself that do actually want those healthy debates and then eventually the tutor is being open or reflective or actually doing their research to then adopt new ideas. I mean, the point be here being is that it takes time to shift people's perceptions or I ideology or or expectations or understandings, which which then leads us into the journey at Tailored Health as a clinic. And so... You've, you'd, you'd come here in a position where you'd learned so much already about yourself. Um, you were, you're doing your, your undergrad and postgrad work. You'd been working clinically with people too. And, and then so I'm curious about your reflection of who you are and how you are, are fairly quick to adopt or motivated to try things to kind of getting into the clinical space with everyday people kind of tripping over themselves. What was it like to introduce the four pillar health philosophy in that setting? And did you get the reception and the adoption that you wanted from clinical application? So, yeah, I would see clients with similar issues, like um, maybe they have HBA dysfunction, like chronic stress, or they have mold toxicity. And I was just seeing these commonalities along with my journey and realizing that they required something similar to what I was doing. And yet I was fixing them through movement. So it started to get me questioning like, okay, am I doing best by my clients? Perhaps much like myself, I need to take that step back and um, look at you know them from a more holistic perspective. So looking at you know 
well, again, like I didn't have language for it at this point, but their mindset, their lifestyle, their nutrition and their movement. And so I really started to take things from functional medicine approach and apply it to how I was treating my clients. And I started to see great success. And, and not only in them, but firstly myself. So for myself, I was applying these things and that's why you know, I thought it was I should really bring it into the clients because it takes time. Everything with health takes time. Real health is slow health. We talked about that at the start. And as I started to really dive in and um, fix everything, so heal the gut and get rid of the mold and fix, um, bring the stress levels down, I noticed my body just responding. And I <laughs> found this lift of brain fog just gone. Mm. Um, and there was this burst of energy. And just felt million bucks compared to what I had ever felt in my whole entire life. It was the first point where I realized, huh, I was living a suboptimal life. Like I, I thought I was good. I, I, what I thought was energy was nothing compared to what I untapped by just getting these fundamental things sorted. And yeah, like I could sit down and actually write and have clarity of mind and recollection of words where previously I would just be just fog, foggy and just never really been able to think and just, yeah, just so depleted of energy. And then I got to the point where I could eventually run. And I remember on that first run, I, I <laughs> literally didn't even run that far. But my first run, I felt like I was back. There was no pain. There was nothing going on. I was like, holy shit, I can run. Okay, now I need to prove this. How do I prove this? And the whole idea was, you know, I wanted to prove that this philosophy works. First for myself, but secondly, so clients can understand that I'm not just saying something, I'm actually doing something. So, um, yeah, I chose at that point, and on that run, I recall exactly where I was back um, and running in my old route from Pukati. I remember thinking, okay, I am going to do an Ironman because to me at that point in time, it was the most, uh, firstly it was ambitious, um, but it is the most physically, mentally and intellectually, to be honest, uh, demanding sport because it requires so much. And yeah, I really... Wanted, I've always been fascinated by a triathlon, so I was like, it was a great next step. So I decided, you know, I'm not just going to do a 10K run or even a marathon for this. Uh, I'll, I'll do a marathon, but I'm going to do it at the end of a 180K bike and a 4K swim because one thing you'll understand about me, and I know you understand about me, is I love a challenge. So I don't want to just take a small goal. I want to take a big, ambitious goal and really attack it and really strive for it and so that's what sent me down the route of triathlon and Ironman and um which eventually became a bit of a addiction and um because I just loved it I loved everything about the sport it was it just challenged me continuously and to get the perfect race is it's a fascinating recipe to get right and yeah so that's kind of how I started to prove and understand the four pillar philosophy and again, applying more, taking the holistic element, but then layering on the performance to that as well, because mm. I wasn't just completing these Ironmans, I was completing it to race it because I wanted to 
qualify for world champs or um, yeah so I was I was trying to do it at a high level mm. and so the interesting caveat to this is that usually when people do Ironman or um, these sort of extended endurance sports is they spend a lot of time out mm. but you had your own business you know you, you were a I think at, the t- at that point in time, a two-man show at Tailored Health and you were, it was a busy practice. You did not have a lot of time. You had already been prioritizing sleep. So of course that has been your undercurrent. So it's not like you just eat away getting up earlier like many people would normally to be able to kind of just cram in more sports or more activity or more training. And so the, the nuance to, to your journey here was how do you, how do you compete at the same level, if not higher, than your peers in less time? Yep, 100%. So, like, my peers, I would say, were training between 20 and 30 hours a week. And, you know, I ran my business. I was also, in part of that time, doing my master's or post-grad, at least. Um, and, yeah, I really didn't have time available. So... And I also wanted to prove that there's a better way of doing it because I don't believe in necessarily training load. And I also knew that my body wouldn't handle the training load because each individual is different. And for me, as we talked about with my tissue tolerance, I don't do well with long, um, like lots of volume, I guess, in training, which is a classic approach for Ironman is volume, 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 volume. So I wanted to prove that you could do it through more intensity and shorter bouts and just doing it really smart and making sure that I, with the training, I had the recovery because no one really does the recovery right or well. So I just made sure I doubled down on both sides. So um, everything I did was purposeful. It wasn't wasn't wasted calories or wasted energy. It was just like, I'm doing this for this reason. This is what I'm trying to achieve. And this is how I recover from this. Mm. And so everything I did was very intentional and right down to the nutrition, the sleep, the mindset, yeah, but again, that was a journey. Um, so when I started that journey, sleep wasn't much of a priority at the start of it. Like it wasn't as much as it became. Um, and I saw the differences in doing that as well. You know, because classic Ironman training is you get up at 5 a.m. to go to swim squad. And that was just kicking me. And then it was not It was about that time where I started tracking with my aura. And which is, for those that don't know, it's a sleep wearable Um and I just noticed my REM, my rapid eye movement sleep, my kind of restorative uh, sleep was just tanking because all when I, I, I started to test out, okay, what was if I sleep a little bit longer? And I identified that I got the majority of my REM sleep between that 5 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. time. And I'm like, okay, if I'm getting up at 5 a.m. to go swimming, I'm losing all my REM sleep. So, and that's also where a lot of your testosterone is produced. So therefore I wasn't getting the training adaptations that I could be getting. And there's a whole host of other things, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point when we start to talk about sleep. But yeah, I just noticed that, huh, yeah, that's another thing I need to layer on. Um, and then I had a whole bunch of tools that I was playing around with um, from recovery to performance. And yeah, it's just the really fun part of just kind of geeking out on those kind of one percenters. How could I maximize it? You know, I went down the route of um, rehauling my nutrition, doing something that nobody else was doing. So everybody else was kind of in the space of, um, you know, high carbs. You know, people would go to pasta parties the night before um, 
Iron Man and that sort of things and they're just just carbs after carbs and just all these gels and I just knew the the impacts of those things on my long-term health because it wasn't just about being performing now it was about performing for the rest of my life as well because Iron Man as a sport is an extremely taxing sport it's not a healthy sport uh, it is a pursuit that you're trying to achieve something, but I don't believe it is a long-term health sport because you're doing something beyond your body's capacity. Yeah, and so for you, your goal is to live until you're 150. Yeah, 100%. 160. Like, yeah, 150, 160. Yeah. Um, because I'm not here, like short-term performance, yeah, absolutely, but I I don't want to do it at the cost of my long-term health. So I was really looking at it through that lens. And so, yeah, well, everyone else is smashing the carbohydrates and the gels and, uh, all that short-term kind of performance stuff, I, I looked at what was out there in the research and identified, um, firstly, carbs don't work for me. So I dove into more fat-adapted training. So I became a fat-adapted athlete. Um, so essentially what that means is you're tapping into your own uh, fat fuel, fat for fuel instead of relying on external sources such as carbohydrate, which you need to continually replenish. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with the carbohydrates um but for me i just they don't, they don't work for me and when my ab testing at least you know when i tested against myself i just felt sluggish and just having to eat so much food mm. and the gels in particular really didn't agree with me with obviously my history of a bad gut so because for those that don't know gels just ruin your gut so i was like no i'm not interested in that so i went to the fat adapted athlete kind of approach and I was also part of a whole bunch of studies up in AUT um, where they tested me, hooked me up into all the machines. And um, yeah, I have all the data to prove that, you know, being a fat adapted athlete worked for me. Uh, yeah, but that's again, that's another rabbit hole we can go down at some point mm. if we choose to. But it's also getting into the genetics too, which mm. I know we're going to talk about and have a yeah. proper podcast episode on. Uh, and I, I, for me at least, you know, coming from a genetic biochemistry background, uh, that I know I find, you know, you know me, mm. I find just infinitely fascinating. Mm. And so that also would have been an undercurrent for you and what was going on, which mm. later we would have aha moments on. But by pure experimental and A-B testing for yourself, mm. you know, you're able to make the right kind of adjustments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as for everything, there's mistakes along the way in my first Ironman I misread, misread the uh, pack, nutritional packaging. Um, so again, I, I did all my Ironmans on real food, so I didn't take any gels or anything like that, which meant I had to carry a little bit more with me because it's not as compact as gels. But yeah, I miscalculated uh, the amount of bliss balls I needed to take uh, with me. And I thought one serving size was uh, one bliss ball, but apparently it was like three bliss balls. So I was like third undercooked of what I should have been. And so there's, there's a whole bunch of learnings along the way and understanding. Um, and that, that, I think that's what I loved about the sport is there's just so many different elements that you just have to get right. Well, the levers, right? Yeah. I mean, if you like a challenge and have a you know sort of a more complex mixture to, to mm. test and trial and experiment with, much much like what we call about the one percenters, mm. if you know the levers, mm. And you know how your body responds with those levers and you know how to tweak them in powerful ways. Mm. That's what creates the one percenter. Yeah. Yeah. And so with your, again, not necessarily having the language at the time with the four pillar health philosophy being implemented into this chosen endeavor for you, where was kind of the, the, the goal was to qualify 
Qualify for what exactly? And and what was that qualifying event? Okay, so on my pursuit to Ironman, I was doing a whole bunch of short distance stuff as I kind of built up into it and ended up qualifying for short distance world champs. Um, so in Rotterdam, uh, which I ended up doing. You know, it was a great opportunity that I wasn't planning to do, but just happened to qualify for it. And so, yeah, I was like, get, get a chance to go to Europe and race. And yeah, absolutely. So I took that up and... Um, that was an amazing experience to, you know, wear the fern and um, race for New Zealand, which was, was awesome. Then, you know, kind of got the bug a little bit more then, obviously, because, you know, there's that, uh, what would you call it? I don't know. It's yeah. a very vibrant culture. Yeah, like a, you, you, yeah. get, you get people who are pretty fastidious and passionate yeah. and vibrant and interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, I just really enjoyed everything about it and then, so I started pursuing, you know, I was, as I was building towards it, I, you know, ended up qualifying for Olympic Distance World Championship. I can't remember if that was before or after my Ironman, but anyway, in the pursuit for that, I ended up qualifying for that and going to Gold Coast. Um, I think that might have been after my Ironman, though. So I ended up doing my Ironman, uh, then qualifying for Gold Coast, I believe. Um, but after my first Ironman, you know, like, it was going to be a one-and-done kind of deal, but I just got absolute, just got the bug, and I, you know, because I got that nutrition wrong in that that Ironman, I just had this need to come back and finish it off because I really wanted to, you know, get a get the time that I wanted, and yeah, and then by that time I also had you know short distance and Olympic distance uh, world champs, so I wanted to go seventy point three, which is half Ironman and full Ironman world champs, so I could get the full collection of race distances. Uh, and yeah, I was over in Indonesia, uh, in Bintan, just off Singapore, uh, racing a 70.3, which was going perfectly to plan. I was about to, um, do exactly the race I wanted to, to qualify for 70.3 worlds, uh, when things went terribly wrong, <laughs> mm. uh, maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, so I didn't qualify there. And then, you know, the month after that, I was supposed to be going to Malaysia to try and qualify for Kona. Um, so I was at my peak performance at that point. Um, but obviously, because of what happened in Bintan, I didn't make it to Malaysia. Um, so the pursuit of qualifying for the world champs has kind of kind of fell to the wayside for the it's, time it's being. It's on a semi, semicolon, right? Yeah, semicolon. To be yeah. continued. Okay, yeah. so let's get back to the big thing, Yeah. which among many things that have happened in your in your life and journey towards vibrant well-being, tell us about what happened at Bintan. <laughs> yeah, so Bintan was, like I said, I was at my peak level. I, I've never felt so fit and healthy in my life, and I was really excited for the race because I had so many races where – just things went wrong. Like there would have been a, maybe a niggle um, that popped up just prior to a race or I got the nutrition a little bit off and I finally figured out all the kinks and I, I was pretty confident that I had this race nailed. Done a lot of heat adaptation training. So this is a 40-degree race and in a beautiful setting. And it's a third-world country, but it's beautiful kind of beaches. And um, yeah, so I was – I had – Perfect swim, and the bike was going perfectly to plan. I was feeling great. And then I was 70 k's into the bike, and I, I don't recall any of this. I came around a corner. I know the spot of where it was because 
got uh, like a got pointed out to me afterwards, and I came around this corner, and there was two speed bumps, and apparently I bunny hopped the first one, and then the second one, my front wheel hit, which sent me flying over, and then I hit head first into a curb, which was quite a substantive curb, but it's like about that far off the ground. About half a meter off the ground. Yeah, about half a meter, yeah, and then yeah, head first into the curb, and yeah, I I don't recall any of that. So I was at the crash site, according to my Garmin computer, for uh, 20 minutes. How? What speed were you going? Uh, 60Ks an hour, according to the Garmin. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, kind of hit, hit went from 60 to zero. Um, how to break an egg. Yeah, how to break an egg, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'm thankful for wearing a helmet. I don't know exactly where I hit. I know from where the scratches are and all that kind of stuff, but I'm pretty. I'm definitely glad I was wearing a helmet. Um, but yeah, I was at the crash site for 20 minutes and I met the volunteer after the race and he was just saying, I was just repeating myself over and over. Is my bike okay? <laughs> of course, that's the first question. Yeah. Yeah. Is Black Betty okay? Tell me. <laughs> yeah. How am I going? Like, where am I in the race? You know, like, um, what happened? And I just repeated those three questions over and over again. And he was like, okay, something's not right. Uh, I'm going to call the medic in and then just classic Indonesia, you know, much like the New Zealand culture, she'll be right. <laughs> I have different language though, I'm sure. But, um, and because I'm that kind of way inclined, I was like, yeah, just jump straight back on my bike and, you know, put everything back in because uh, I just spare tubes and everything went flying everywhere and just stuffed as much back in my tri-suit as I could and jumped back on my bike and, uh yeah. Finished off the rest of the bike. There was another 20Ks that I just don't recall. And how fast were you going during that 20K that you cannot recall? <laughs> uh, so, again, looking at the Garmin computer because I wasn't there. Um, well, I was there physically, just <laughs> <laughs> momentarily. Uh, my bike went uh, – actually, first of all, my bike cost four and a half grand to get fixed, which is pretty much a write-off. Um so I was riding. You're still riding it. Yeah, in fact, that I was still riding it. Uh, I was a bit concerning, but yeah, then I went multiple times over 60 k's an hour, and yeah, no recollection of that. So that was extremely scary because knowing head injuries is if I came off in any of those things, which was very possible with not mentally being present, secondly being on pretty much a ride off of a bike, I could have easily not be here today so i'm extremely thankful that my muscle memory <laughs> did what it needed to do and even going 60 k's an hour because you know i didn't realize i'd lost 20 minutes well actually i don't recall any of that so i, I just kept going i kept racing mm. um because you know i was there to to win um so yeah i came into transition and that's where things kind of came to so you know the transition for those who are not triathletes or know yeah. about it so transition is what so I've done my 2K swim, I've done my 90K bike, I'm coming in from the bike to the run. Mm -hmm. So um, putting my bike into transition where I'm going to bad put my running shoes on um, and head out for a half marathon. And yeah, I was kind of coming in and just dazed and confused and didn't know what was going on. There's a whole bunch of blood just pissing out and I'm like, oh, something's happened, but I don't know what, don't know I've lost the 20 minutes. So okay, we'll just keep going. And yeah, if you'd known you'd lost twenty minutes, would you just have stopped? 
I still wouldn't have stopped. <laughs> Let's be, yeah, Let's be honest. honest. But I thought I had more of a chance. You know, I was like, yeah. you don't know how other people's races are going in the day. I know I was going slower than I should have been going, but I was like, I don't know how bad other people's mm. races. And I'm not like I could really tell of anything that was going on, really. I was quite out, out of there. It. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I went into half marathon in 40 degree heat and finished that. And then, and yeah, like I was, I just collapsed across the line afterwards and just absolute mess. And just lost all control, and yeah, that's where the the torture really started, I guess, for me. Like, um, yeah. torture is such an interesting word considering your friendship with pain. Yeah, and at that point in, in time, I'm sure you know you were well into the ideology that um, anti-inflammatories and painkillers were not something that you were willing to accept in your body. Yeah. So, okay, t- <laughs> tell us more. Yeah, I think the torture comes down to just being incapacitated. I just really couldn't do anything. I, I couldn't sit without being in pain. I couldn't think. I couldn't. Where was the pain? Uh, was obviously the head, like the head. throbbing headache. Obviously, my body was messed up too. So I, I can't remember. I had a whole host of injuries that are associated with the crash too. Um, I think I, yeah, my ankle was sprained. Uh, shoulder. I remember seeing photos of grazes all up the your your back and, yeah. and the bottom of your neck. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I can't remember. It was a whole host of injuries, but that was at least my worries. Your brain um, just felt like it was about to explode. Oh, it did. It horrendous, especially with the heat as well. Like, it was pretty bad. So, yeah, like I um, was in the medic, I got dragged to the medic tent and I was there for about four or five hours. Um, then kind of sat through prize giving, uh, which was just agony, just hearing that loudspeaker. And then had to kind of find my way back to my resort I was kind of staying I was kind of like yeah this, this place and yeah oh, I wasn't staying where everyone else was I was staying with there was this one other guy that was at the race that um was staying where I was and there's an Italian guy that didn't speak a lick of English so all our communication was through Google Translate and so we ended up he ended up helping me get back thankfully I was really thankful for him and yeah, I got back to the place and he was packing up and getting ready to go tomorrow and I had another day or so there and I was like, had to kind of Google Translate and do everything I could to kind of get him to help me break my down my bike because I couldn't do it. Mm. I could barely sit up, let alone think, but I had to kind of communicate yeah. through Google Translate to get him to break down my bike and the guy was absolutely amazing. He's like, he's this 60-year-old weapon that just, he won his age group. Uh, he's an amazing guy and just doesn't speak a lick of English. And um, yeah, it helped me out and break down the bike and packed it up for me, which I was super thankful for. And then, yeah, ensued the kind of probably the worst night of my life, which was, you know, just in a like a whole bunch of pain. But the interesting thing with uh, concussions is you don't want to take anti-inflammatories or anything anyway. I wouldn't have taken even if I was able to because I have a, a belief that you don't want to like especially when you're by yourself you don't want to dull the pain because you need to be understand how to deal with it and how understand how significant it is and um, because if you dull it you can do things that make it worse mm. um, so I wanted to first of all be present because I was traveling by myself no one to support me um, which was extremely scary because you know I also hadn't told my mum at that point because I wanted to survive the night um yeah so you know there's so many questions going through my brain okay, like okay. You know, what do i do 
Oh, Who do I tell? And it pain, it's so hard <laughs> to hear because, you know, yeah. from, from my perspective, I just I can't stand the idea that you were going through that all alone. So I need to kind of like swallow that a little bit for myself. But yeah. this topic deserves an entire podcast episode. And so as much as I do crave mm. to go into this and double yeah. tap and share the specific journey yeah. and then what you did as a result of all those things, because, again, we, we, we see a lot of traumatic brain injury or post-concussion syndrome people inquire based yeah. on you know, the, the blog posts that you've done in, in your journey there and a not-so-ordinary path to recovery. And you're still on that path mm. um, three years later. Uh, and so, I, again, I want to make sure that we honour yeah. that so people can learn if they've had their own TBI or post-concussion syndrome, what they can do to potentially learn from you mm. and then get the help, help that they're actually looking for. Because to be frank, it feels like there's not a lot of help out there for that type of it's injury because it's much like your life. There is a hidden nature to mm. the pain and hidden nature to that injury that can be really deceptive and hard to navigate. So I want to put a bit of a pin in that one. Yep. Um, so that was three-ish years ago. Three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years ago. And the rest is kind of like being taking your full pillar health philosophy and trying to implement that into an everyday life recovering from a brain injury. Yep. Have you really, really quickly and without too much detail, where are you at on that journey today? With my, my brain? Yeah. Yeah, so again... <laughs> So at the start of, so I had the head injury and then when I came home, I pretty much got approached to acquire a business. So at that period of time, in absolute fogginess, I ended up acquiring what is now Tailored Health Hub, which is the bigger facility. So essentially, at the end of 2019, I was in the acquisition process of um, acquiring FitMe, which um, I merged into Tailored Health. And then kind of 10x'd my uh, physical space and brought a bigger team in to help kind of support clients on that kind of philosophy. Because it's always something I've wanted to do, which was to have a holistic health hub where it's more than just me, but it's actually bringing in all the top specialists to kind of wrap around the individual and support them on their health journey um, across mindset, lifestyle, nutrition, and movement. So it was quite a... Um, foggy time and it was a big process of undertaking that with the head injury and you know the biggest thing I noticed with my head injury was decision fatigue I just couldn't make the simplest of decisions again like if you talk to mum she just couldn't believe it because I've always been quite a decisive person knowing what I want but the amount of times I would just repeat myself and just say am I making the right decision and it was yeah, it was hard. It was painful. And I just went back and forth, back and forth. And she would give me the answer and tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, what should I really do? And it was just, yeah. So that was that was a challenging time. But yeah, ended up, long story short, acquired the business um, and took over January 2020, pretty much start of January 2020. Um, not the best time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the elephant in the room right yeah. there. Yeah. So I kind of... Built out a runway and made sure I had a runway of about um, to, I think it was the 1st of April. So I kind of wanted to have the first three months of just really understanding the business that I'd taken over and the merging of my business. I didn't want to make any drastic changes or really go to market. Uh, so 
yeah, I didn't really make it to market before that one thing that we know that everyone's had to deal with. Um, COVID, COVID kicked lockdown. in. Yeah, COVID yeah. lockdown. Um, so, yeah, never made it to market. So, therefore, you know, that runway ate up really quickly and then tapped into savings, tapped into, yeah, which led into a, essentially a whole lot of financial stress just continually, um, yeah. All on the road while you're trying to recover. Yeah, all on the road while trying to recover. And you'd think, you know, eight weeks off, that's going to be great. But, you know, the classic person I am, I just doubled down and just saw this as an opportunity to help those that are struggling through this period of time. So, you know, I cancelled all memberships, didn't charge anybody for the first eight-week lockdown, which, again, I didn't have any new clients coming in anyway, so... Like we we had clients, but the clients that were there, we just didn't charge, and you know, because we wanted to, you know, that we knew they were struggling. So we offered a whole bunch of services free as yeah. well to a broader community. So and- we offered daily workouts, and then I was doing daily content. Um, All locked out at the mount, yep. so you weren't even in the same city as your own facility because yep. lockdown happened with like two days' notice. Yep, so I, I think it was. Yeah, so I quickly got to the mount. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, so that caused a whole bunch of stress and then coming back, we're in and out of lockdowns. It's so hard because yeah. we'd start initiatives with, like, all right, we can kickstart, uh, you know, new healthy programs, we can kickstart a refresh. And then within, again, a couple of days notice, we'd be thrust back into lockdowns again where people were just isolated into their homes, couldn't get out, facilities basically were shut down. And it was in and out for about, it felt like about eight months. Oh, was, at that was point where it was like, yeah, yeah, we're kind of open. Oh, no, we're not. We had a good period over that summer, that first summer that kind of was opened up and we kind of thought we're out and we were just finally recovering and making some good traction. And then, yeah, straight back into a hole in and out again. And, and that's when we'd um, would also made facility upgrade, thinking yep. we were close to getting out. We'd hired a marketing and community manager. Built the Zen Den. Built the Zen Den, which is this beautiful sort of Bali-esque mm. place to do recovery, yoga, and things like that in our facility. So I think we took it from like 380 square meters to like 430 or 440. But yeah, so there was a whole bunch of expansion and a lot of uncertainty and yeah, just clients were... In and out because they never felt comfortable enough to kind of commit to something because they didn't know what was happening in their lives and they had their own stresses going on with COVID. So it was a really hard time to have a physical presence. Um, and, you know, when I took on this business, it was tossed between creating it through an app or doing a physical presence. And uh, I went with physical presence, which in hindsight, I kind of regret knowing what I know now. Mm. But at the same time, I also think I needed to go through this and, um, yeah, I've it's there's been so many learnings throughout this journey and thankful for having you come on board um and towards I think was it the end of 2020 you yeah, joined Taylor. Yeah. Um but yeah, so it, it hasn't been a clear kind of recovery journey for my brain and if it wasn't for covid I think my brain would be fine because everything I cause I just did everything I should be doing. But because of that undertone or chronic stress my brain never really recovered that kind of led into end of last year where you graciously just said you know we're in a good place now we're recovering making good traction um we'd sold sold the house and um so we had like a 
good good place coming into the end of the year where most people are just too busy to really lean into their health anyway. Like, okay, take some time off. I'm going to take over the businesses. And she graciously took over the businesses and I went into recovery for six weeks uh, up until Christmas, I think it was, something like that. Um, and I was finally getting the traction I needed to recover and I was in a great place until New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes, New Year's Eve. <laughs> um, Thank you, Universe, for sending that little signal to still take it easy. Yeah, and, you know, like I had been away from work, no emails, no nothing. Like Rage had been super gracious and just taking my hands off everything and I uh, spent most of my time in Raglan, Fongamata. Beach cities. Beach cities. Yeah. Just disconnected um, from everything and just going on the internal journey of recovery and doing what I needed to do and yeah, making great headway. And then New Year's Eve, I was over at Mahia and um, with a friend, staying with a good friend over there. And uh, yeah, I went out for a morning surf at 5 a.m. on a surf break that I didn't really know and uh, thought I could surf left on the, the reef, but which I could. Um, but what I didn't realize was how dangerous it got as the tide went out. So, because mm. when I went paddled out, it was dark. And then, you know, as I started to surf, the um, tide came out and therefore exposed a lot more reef, which I wasn't aware of because uh, it was still relatively dark. And then I was surfing along a wave and flipped over head first into the reef. And yay, got to go on that journey again of another concussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously we're in uh, start of February now and it's been a bit of a bit of a journey to kind of really uh, unpack that all over again, going back to the early phases of it. Don't get me wrong, it's not as significant as the previous one, but it's, it's frustrating. It's a couple of steps back. It's a couple of steps back yeah. and it's frustrating because, you know, I just can't work. Um to the extent I need to and because mm. I obviously needed to come back to work to help unload you mm. um, and you know one to two hours work a day is my capacity as it stands and um, you know right now I'm on a whole bunch of uh, adaptogens and like a little mix that I've kind of created to kind of get myself stimulated enough to do this podcast and um, it'll be the only thing I'll do today because my mind's still recovering. Mm. And I need to honour that as well because I know not to push through these things because it's only going to get worse. And, yeah, so it's been a very interesting journey, but I'm making good progress. I'm doing all the right things. Um, luckily, I know what I need to do. And um, Yeah, I mean, so. I, think, I think brain injuries, you've mentioned it before, it's, it's, a, hidden, it's a hidden challenge because from the outside, physically, you seem perfectly fine. Um, and it's all an internal game, which you, you, only you can can navigate how bad your headaches are every day. Like I know that mm. generally you've been suffering, accepting, receiving, holding space for the headaches that have been pretty consistent friends for you since the um, the initial head injury. Mm. And then, of course, you were so close to kind of getting rid of them during that yeah. little break, uh, only to kind of have them reappear after the New Year's Eve um, event, which I know you chastised yourself about. Like, yeah. again, we, we, there's nothing we can do about that. And mm. um, and I and I think we just sometimes just got to surrender to the fact that it's your that journey is not finished for you. Mm. And then coming back to the medical system again as well is 
failing me once again. Yeah. <laughs> like, ACC. Yeah. So ACC is Accident Compensation yeah. Commission or something like oh, that yeah. for New Zealand. And so, um, yeah, we have kind of a um, a social welfare sort of welfare state. And so, when there's an accident, there are levies that gov- um, c- companies pay to keep ACC working, which effectively compensates for an individual's health journey when there's an accident. So just for our international listeners, that's sort of how ACC works in New Zealand. And so they're supposed to come to the table with a whole system that helps to support you get back from the accident to recovery, to normality. And I don't even think they've called you back. No, so I was very thankful at the accident in Mahia, one of my good friends and who's been quite significant on my previous head injury journey, uh, Fiona, who's a chiropractor um, down in the Hawke's Bay, she was there with her table and everything, as always. She travels with the table. She's amazing. Um, So she was able to assess me and treat me while there. So I got some nice uh, instant treatment, which is great. But And then she, she, you know, did the the ACC claim on pretty much New Year's. And, you know, we're in early February now. And the most critical time of a head injury as well is early on. The sooner you can kind of get on top of things, the better. And luckily, I know what I need to be doing to get myself better. But for those that don't, like this is what yeah. frustrates me the most is like I'm out of work. So I should be, I've got no compensation as a business owner, which is something obviously would be beneficial mm. um, to kind of help us through this period while I'm really not working. Secondly, they have a concussion care clinic. They should have contacted me that I was long story short, disappointed with last time, but still they should have contacted me mm. um, about um, going into that and getting assessed and going through all the systems and processes. But the fact that I'm, you know, over a month into this journey and they still haven't even reached out. Yeah. Um, they've accepted the claim, but they haven't reached out to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, even with Fiona. Um, following up. Following up multiple times. Yeah. And I mean, the um, fact that you know what to do inherently is... Yeah where there's an advantage. You also have a partner, I I can help support Mm. you. I know enough Mm. to be supportive, not enough to be amazing Mm. for you, but I certainly do my best to to support you. And I know you're releasing a blog post on how supporters can best help the others or their loved ones with head injuries. And so I'm really looking forward to to seeing Mm. that. Uh, But but at the same time, someone who has had a head injury and simply can't think clearly like at that point in time, they rely on the system that we pay into to be able to be supportive. Um, so again, I'm, I'm trying to detract from the fact that we could reach out to the, the clinic. Oh, we have. Oh, um, you've yeah, actually reached yeah, out? Yeah, I reached out, yeah. And no, no yeah. Okay. Anyway, so the fact that you know what to do is an advantage, mm. but normal people who are hit mm. and debilitated can't think. There's definitely a, a gap there. Mm. And so that's why I'm excited to make a whole episode about this yeah so people can learn from it yeah um because i got no funding last time either even though yeah. i really needed it because it was prior to you yes really on my own um, yeah yeah but anyway that's, that's part of the that's, journey that's, that's a long story so i, I think you <laughs> quite particularly said we, we can have to do a whole podcast in that one and this is kind of the you know also triggers of the trauma too where it's like the path of vibrant well-being let alone just the path of well-being mm. shouldn't be this confusing or lonely. Yep. And so I think this is a perfect spot to, to wrap up um, because I, we wanted to be able to kind of hold some space for your journey um, and to give some context to the origin story and the why so we can help build upon the, the episodes of this season 
to hopefully something that can really help our loved ones understand mm. and do more towards that wonderful path to vibrant well-being. Now, is there anything you want to finish up with or would like to say before we close out? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think I think we've like there will be absolutely stuff, but I'm going to have my opportunity. It's not like be on the next podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll welcome you back. I'll Hi, welcome you back. Yeah, I'll be back. it's the Rachel Luke show or the Luke and Rachel. Um, so yeah, like there will be other things I've had to say, of course, but mm. I, nothing that comes to mind as of yet. But I think yeah, like if you're struggling with something, reach out. Um, we're here to help and um if we yeah. don't know the answer we'll help perhaps figure out where to go yeah um, and yeah. whether that is just giving you guidance and information and sending mm. you down the right path or it's actually us helping um yeah no we just we want less loneliness in this world yeah absolutely yeah well thank you for sharing this journey with us despite all of the technical glitches which wow. To our listeners, we do apologize because by the time you hear this, you would have noticed there's been a change in audio quality and then a shift, oh, those that are looking at it on YouTube, a shift to the various laptop versus GoPro. Suffice to say, we've learned a bunch from even this first episode on what to do and what to, not to do, as well as uh, technology that just keeps uh, underperforming for for our needs so um thank you for hanging in there uh, for all of those that are listening and we hope we can continue delivering something delightful over the next few episodes and hopefully it wasn't too bitsy because <laughs> yeah, we had the gopro cutting off every five minutes so and one delivery and a kitty cat playing with the shares behind us oh, yeah, true, yeah. Yeah. i'm just actually really pleased they didn't jump up yeah because you know sneaky yeah oh well done First episode, boom.